the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Jesse Gastan. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gastan. I want to welcome you to another Monday edition of Lifeline, if I might say so myself. Let me see if I can hear myself. There we go. There we go. Monday. Glorious Monday. Wonderful Monday. It's a splendid Monday, if I might say so myself. Welcome again to the Monday edition of Lifeline. Your host, Jesse Gistin. As you have just heard, almost everything he said is true. (laughs) Some of it is a little bit of a stretch, but... I'm glad to be alive. I am who I am, and you are who you are. And uh, if you've been used to our program, you know what we do. We take topics, and uh, we try to brew up uh, an event that would leave lasting insight, impressions, understanding, clarity, expansion of our our knowledge of God, our knowledge of ourselves. And um, I'm hoping we can do that as well Today, on this September 30th, 2019, moving quick into the month of October. And I guess you know, over the last couple of days, we've had a real shift in the weather. I was um, kind of boasting in the fact that um, we were moving into a kind of um, uh, Indian summer. Last week was just fabulous in terms of 75, 80, 85 degrees weather. Uh, the weekend was good, and then lo and behold, Sunday, Sunday afternoon was something else. And then also, I think it was, um, uh, yeah, Saturday night, um, Friday night, Saturday night, uh, precipitation and raining and things like that um, over the last couple of days. So, you know, this is how California goes for you and I. You might want to carry a jacket anywhere and everywhere you go because we might just to have a delay in our in our uh, our wonderful wonderful weather, but in any event, you know what? I'm happy to be alive and alive in Christ, and I hope you are too. Over the last couple of weeks, for me, for me, and 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 quite frankly, for many of us who had the privilege of gathering together in conference, a holy convocation, if you will, over the last couple of weeks, enjoying the presence of God and topics that are so germane to our life. Two weeks ago on Saturday, if you guys remember, we had a Daughters of Grace presentation and conference, and it was so good, so pertinent, so relevant, and God met us in the gathering. By the way, a lot of you came out. I mean, a lot of visitors came out, different uh, young women, older women, senior women, young, young women, young ladies, young girls came out uh, on that Saturday two weeks ago. And uh, just had a great time dealing with a topic that's going to kind of be foundational to what I want to talk about today, and that is the love of God uh, and the necessity of that love 
uh, occupying a place in our hearts at the level of maturity and development so that all of these kinds of crazy human experiences that we all have uh, in some way or another can be successfully dealt with. In other words, the Bible really does say about the love of God, when properly comprehended, understood within the framework of the triune God, and delivered through the context of biblical truth, the love of God, not this mushy, gooey emotionalism, but a radical intentionality on the part of the father uh, paternally and on the part of the son uh, propitiously and then on the part of the spirit of God personally to work in the lives of men and women, groups of people from every nation, kindred, tribe and tongue to begin to create in them a life of confidence, a life of fullness, a life that is assertive, a life that is expressive, but a life, no doubt, that is filled with the need to develop and to grow and to mature in order to express the fullness of God in our lives. And the Apostle John kind of set the context for that with these two verses that I'm going to use to um, you know, create a context for our thoughts today. First John chapter four, verse 18 says, there is no fear in love. Now that proposition all by itself is worthy of absolute and complete meditation, reflection on a more technical level, exegesis and exposition. When John says here in verse 18, part A, there is no fear in love. He's giving you in a very short and terse statement a complete compendium of theology as it is rooted in the reality of God himself. A complete compendium of theology as it is rooted in God himself. In other words, what James is doing is letting you and I know that when you have a proper concept of God, you have a proper concept of love. When you have a sufficient concept of God, you have a sufficient concept of love. A proper concept, a sufficient concept. When you have an experiential concept of God, you have an experiential concept of love. You have an efficient concept of love. You have a sufficient concept of love. You have a rich experiential concept of love operating in your life when you come to know God in his triune persons redemptively. That's the beginning of what that means. And, and I have to say that because, you know, you hear people talking about love all the time. I'm, in fact, we have capitalized in our country and in our world on the term love uh, we owe somebody, I can tell you that now, we owe somebody for the the overt excessive use of that term in such a way that uh, everyone assumes we know what love is, but that cannot be simply based upon how people behave. It cannot be simply based upon the statistics that are out there concerning all of the different maladies and woes and sorrows and pains and sicknesses. And here's the word, are you ready? Fears. It cannot be that we have a comprehensive, deep, experiential, personal, radical, redemptive understanding of love. When all we see all around us is division, 
divisiveness, destruction, fear, phobia, anxiety, depression, destruction, and even self-destruction. In other words, when the assessment is properly made concerning the state of men around the world, whether you are in a poor country or a rich country, everywhere in the world, far more frequently is our lives driven by fear than it is by faith. Driven by lust than it is by love. Driven by darkness than it is by light. Driven by self than it is by the sacrifice of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. To tell the truth, if you look at this world, what the world really needs now is love, sweet love, but it needs a biblical love, not a carnal, selfish love, not a secular love, not a... Uh, discombobulated love that's built on emotionalism and then betrays you on selfishness because that's the kind of love that has been uh, occupying and dominating the narrative for decades, at least going back to the 50s and 60s, as you might know, right? The time of love. So when Christians use that term as well, we discover that Christians are not rooted and grounded in biblical love as they ought to be, and they frequently conflate this kind of emotional, fickle, sensual uh, love that human beings talk about that's much more uh, romantic in nature, much more uh, 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 sensual in nature, much more uh, fickle in nature, if you will, because uh, it's an illusory love that we are basically dealing with. Hollywood dominates uh, it's movie screens with a pseudo love narrative <clears throat> that quickly drives all of us to the theater. If you're that kind of a person to watch a good love scene that may have some war elements to it, some conflict elements to it, some 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 rescue elements, some uh, subordinate and uh, person that is being dominated and controlled and, and love delivering them. We get all that. That's all about your superhero movies and your love stories, etc. And then. Uh, speaking of love in terms of uh, the music industry, it is massively dominated with uh, with music, with which the term love is. If you were to do a Google on love and the title in almost all songs across the board relative to those most popular songs that resonate with us and stick to us and become the quips that come out of our mouths. That word love is going to be hovering somewhere as the premise, the main melody, the hook. The outro, etc., because quite interestingly enough, whereas the enemy, the devil, knows nothing of love, as would be the case with the nature and attributes of God in Christ, he will take any word that God uses to describe the essence of himself and manipulate it, bastardize it, distort it, and then employ it for its own destructive means. So when John says... There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Because fear has torment. The person that is operating out of fear is never going to be made perfect in love. The two are mutually exclusive in terms of if fear rules, love cannot fully and fiercely and faithfully manifest itself. You get that. And he says, we, uh, he says in verse 18, there is no fear in love, 
but perfect love casts out fear because uh, because fear has torment. He that feareth not, he that feareth is not made perfect in love. So John, speaking to his congregation, lets them know that the remedy to the present tribulation that they were enduring with regards to false prophets and false teachers having entered in denying the humanity of Christ, the real humanity of Christ, the hypostases of the God-man, Jesus Christ, the mystery of his human nature being absolutely 100% legitimate, very man of very man, as the creed would put it, although being also very God of very God. What John was saying is that to take up this truth is to wage war against the devil and to, to, to combat this dark world, which will, which will throw everything in its arsenal at you to keep you from operating out of the power and accomplishments of this paternal, sacrificial, and personal love, paternal, propitious, and personal love of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. This is the only kind of love that can take you and I up out of the grounds of fear that keep us in bondage, leading us to damnation. This is the only kind of love that can take us from darkness to light, out of death into life, out of fear into faith, out of uh, uh, out of the anxieties, and the multiple, multiple maladies that keep us impeded, keep us trapped, keep us in bondage, keep us stuck. Only the love of God can bring one up out of that to wage war against the bondage systems of this world. And what are they? John said it in 1 John chapter 2. All that's in the world is the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Those three are contrary to the Father. And those three are what operate around you and I every day. And those three are what challenge us, distract us, oppose us, hinder us, obstacles from manifesting the love of God in Christ Jesus, which would be to the Father's glory, which would be to the affirmation of your salvation. And it would be also to the evangelical efforts of lost people, as well as the edifying benefits of those that are saved. If you and I were walking in the love of God, as we ought, if we were walking profoundly in the depths of God's love, as we are, and to walk in God's love is to walk in God, as John said, God is love. He did not say love is God. Do not get the subject-object relationship wrong. To do so means you just know nothing about theology. He did not say love is God. Don't ever say love is God. Don't ever switch the subject with the object. God is love. Okay? But love is not God. Because God, while he is in his essence love, he is many other things relative to that love as well. Okay? And so what John wants you and I to know is that if we're going to ever have a proper definition of love is we have to actually know God. Right? Herein is the love of God manifested. He sent his son to take away our sins so that we might live in him. That this love of God might manifest itself to us, for us, in us, and through us. And that is really where the struggle for the Christian at this present time is in the manifestation of the love of God, given all of these different maladies. And I was driving... uh, 
this morning from taking my, our missionary, Lance and Robin Heller, preparing them to go back to the airport, closing out the bills and things that I heard a very interesting statistic that I want to just bring to the surface and begin to dialogue with you about in light of our uh, uh, present med- meditation on love. And, and the statement was by, um, by, by a news advertisement that stated that whenever individuals are found incarcerated, placed in, in jails or in prison, and they are uh, isolated, put in solitary confinement, that the statistical probability rate of suicide goes up exponentially. Whenever you isolate someone, separate them from society, put them in solitary confinement. And it was so intriguing to hear that in light of what I had been meditating on for the last several weeks, weeks around the love of God and the work of the third person, which is where we are in our Sunday series. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus that walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That when I heard the fact that men and women are compelled to end their lives, when they find themselves in the constraints of solitary confinement, separated from everyone, it really caused me to think through what kind of fear grips them, anxiety grips them, Uh, depression grips them. Hopelessness grips them that will cause them to entertain entertain, and indeed take their life. Well, that's what you and I want to talk about, because what the gospel does when properly understood and properly proclaimed is not tell everybody, smile, God loves you, but to tell everyone there is an eternal separation and solitary confinement to come when we continually spend our lives not wanting to have fellowship with God. This is a Monday edition of Lifeline, way overdue. Got to pay a bunch of bills. I'll be back. Three lines open, one 367 Three lines open, one 367 We want to talk about fear. We want to talk about faith. We want to talk about love and how close it might be to you and I. Let's, let's go to work, you guys. The lines are open. Let's talk about it. What are the fears, anxieties, the stresses, the deep, 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 deep hindrances that are putting you in a place of depression and, and uh, listlessness and the inability to do what God wants you to do? I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. And we are at the time 532. Three lines open. one 367 I uh, said before the break that I had heard um, a, a very startling uh, statistic about uh, incarceration suicide based upon uh, solitary confinement that when people are forced into solitary confinement, that uh, for some reason, that state of being separated and isolated and alone becomes intolerable for people to maintain a kind of self-sufficient uh, preoccupation. And, and what was fascinating about the thought of it is 
Think about this with me, ladies and gentlemen. Most people laud being by themselves. Most people uh, act in in ways that indicate rather than, you know, uh, understanding the the benefit and the preciousness and the importance of uh, of community, uh, being with people that they they really would like to have kind of a solitary state. You you kind of hear this the sentimentality that uh, the best world for some people would be all by themselves on their own island. I know that's not true. Let me show you how I know that's not true. Yes, people would definitely. Frequently, who don't have a very missional and a healthy self-perspective, missional and healthy self-perspective, meaning they're not very clear on who they are and they're not very clear on what they're supposed to do. And as such, there are all kinds of vulnerabilities in their life at different angles and different perspectives for which they know that if someone saw that weakness, they might be inclined to have to be accountable for it. And therefore, they don't want people to be too close to them. They don't want to have folks uh, aware of and seeing through some of the veneer that keeps us operating on the superficial le- level, that, that kind of projected person level instead of the real us. When we don't have clarity on who we are and we don't have clarity on what we have, then we're going to be inclined to at least the romanticism of exclusion and separation and isolation. But here is the hypocrisy of that. The hypocrisy of that notion is that even when you shut yourself up into your bedroom, even when you shut yourself up into your house, even when you shut yourself up into your car, even when you cross the street and go the other way and and are willing not to even appear to see your neighbor, Nine times out of 10 and more, people are preoccupied consistently and relentlessly with some form of connection to the outside world. Are they not? Their cell phones, their computers, social media. For these same people who will talk about, I love being by myself, largely, they are never by themselves. They are always engaged among the trees. They are always engaged in what we have called the Adam syndrome. When Adam basically said to God, go to hell. When him and Eve stuck their fist in God's face and said, we will eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because we will be self-determining. You will not tell us, God, what good is. You will not tell us what evil is. We will determine that for ourselves. Thank you. You will not put boundaries on us. And is not that the autocratic, selfish, narcissistic attitude of the whole human race right now? Of course it is. And yet... What did they do? They fled and hid among the trees, covering themselves with fig leaves, running from the voice of God. Now, I'm here to tell you that's the foundation of a lot of what's going on in our world. Now, as much as you and I want to feel very sympathetic for, sorry for, and very empathetic for, we want to kind of identify with people who may be incarcerated. And for whatever reason, just or unjust, we can talk about that too, whether or not it's a just thing for people to be not only incarcerated for crimes, but to be isolated from people. We can talk about that. That is not the main point here. The main point here is when an individual is taken by a force and power greater than their own and then placed in solitary confinement, 
and not having the benefit and privilege of the apparatuses by which they can still pipe out into the whole world, which was never the case 100 years ago when people were isolated 100 years ago, whether in their house, in their rooms, in their cars or what have you. They were really isolated before radio, were they not? Today, we know very little about this. Talking to uh, my um, my dear uh, missionary brother Lance and Robin Heller about what goes on in Papua New Guinea, and they really do ministry out in the bush country. I mean, out in the bush country where there is no fundamental electricity, no running water, no no modern uh, amenities that you and I have. I mean, they are back at primitive stage. They know quietness. They know separation. They know tribal distinction. They know the solitude of living in the jungle. They know it and they live with it. But this strange modern gadget has made its way to Papua New Guinea, even into the villages and in, in the, uh, the bush where people are still running around fairly disrobed. It's called a cell phone. And do you know when they when they get a hold to an old archaic cell phone, they will use every ingenuity to make sure that cell phone is charged. So whenever they can get a signal, uh, they will now communicate with the outside world. Why? Well, here's what I'm saying. Thinking through, thinking through with me, the phobic fears and anxiety and stresses, the things that would cause you and I to be inclined to want to separate, separate, isolate ourselves experiences that come into our lives like that, very bad experiences that reinforce the irrational and unhealthy fears. They're from the enemy and they are tools to keep us from enjoying who we are and what we have in Christ. It's what John is saying in 1 John 14. Perfect love does not allow that kind of phobic, irrational, unhealthy fear to trap you and isolate you because the wolf is, he's already operating. The, the, the lion is already prowling. The predator is already uh, crouching to take the prey of your soul when you are isolating yourself. And again, as I stated before the break, isolation of this kind of nature Without you knowing the promises of God. Well, it sets your soul and my soul up for a very tragic and traumatic experience when someone has power over us to isolate us. Child of God, think about this. The fear of being isolated at the end of the day should never be a fear for a believer. Who are we? As true children of God, we are redeemed people. We are blood-bought. We are justified sinners. That means we are reconciled to God. That means we have been brought back into union with God, fellowship with God by faith in Christ. That means that we have that immutable, unchangeable, irrevocable promise, right? Right? I will never leave you nor forsake you, which means the believer is never truly ever in any condition, state, or what have you, alone. And what do we have? We have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, a covering from the eternal wrath of God, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, access to the Father. All things in Jesus Christ necessary for life and godliness, these are the promises of the word of God given to us in him. 
And one of the important reasons why the gospel must be preached fully and adequately in terms of what God has called lost sinners to is a recovery to communion with God. So that real communion with God completely demolishes the fear that John is talking about. The irrational, unhealthy fear that John is talking about that leads to torment. That leads to irrational actions on the part of people. And then when people are caught, see, prison is a type of the ultimate judgment, is it not? Isn't it a type of the ultimate uh, capture of the sinner uh, at the great assignment of God when he will, say, uh, cast them into outer darkness? There shall be what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why is there weeping and gnashing of teeth? Because darkness is a metaphor and analogy of separation and isolation. And the lake of fire is an analogy of confinement with torment, which is what prison can do for a person that is taken by force of law and placed in an isolated state. And that's bad, but it's not the worst thing in the world. Placed in an isolated state, listen to me now, without God. See, it became clear to me when I heard the stats that the juxtaposition of being free and living helter-skelter and engaging in maybe criminal behavior or questionable behavior or unlawful behavior and then being apprehended by law and then law taking the privilege of freedom away from you, the privilege and rights of communion away from you, the privilege and rights of the commonwealth away from you and putting you in isolation. Now you are facing reality for real. That while you had the freedom to exist and be with and commune and fellowship and enjoy the preciousness of other people, communion and, and, and the, the interaction and engagement of life with others, especially God, you didn't take advantage of it. And now isolate it. You don't know how to get to God. The scariest thing in the world, I suppose is being by yourself without God. That's what startled me about the article, and I'm thinking, whoa. Hiding among the trees is what we're doing. Becoming sick and ill and unhealthy and distracted and trapped by all kinds of illusions as it were, just abiding time until the great imprisonment and isolation and confinement in the truest and eternal sense all by ourselves. So when John says perfect love casts out fear, where are you at on the spectrum of that fear and on the spectrum of that love? Two lines open, one 367 Two lines open because you know where you and I are. If you're a believer, then you you understand who you are. If you're a believer, you should understand what you have. But you and I know we're on that spectrum. Are we at the beginning line? Are we a quarter in, half in, three quarters in? Can we safely say that if we were isolated for whatever reasons, that though we might sense the loneliness of no human beings around us, that we are never alone, 
I'm going to talk more about that when I come back. Two lines open, one 888 and I'll take your calls when we come back on the Monday edition of Lifeline. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. And we're back. The time, 548. Let me see here. Um, we've got two lines open, one 888 We are working through the idea of understanding the love of God as the ultimate remedy for all of our phobic anxiety, uh, maladies, depressions, um, all of the pathologies that keep us from walking in the the fullness of, of fellowship and communion with him. And John's admonition to his own church is an admonition that you and I have to really think through in our generation, simply because of what I was stating earlier, is that if you take a moment to just kind of reflect on the fact that uh, quite possibly you and I are not ready for any kind of substantial isolation because we really don't have that deep and profound a fellowship with God. That if, in fact, we were separated on an island all by ourselves, would we know how to get to God or to be with God or to recognize the presence of God and to be able to engage God in communion and dialogue in the midst of our problems, in light of the providence of God, in light of the uh, personal uh, challenges that would be in front of us? Would we be able to? Have a sense of Coram Dale, the presence of God, the a dialogue with God, a, a forum with God. That's what Coram Dale means. It doesn't just mean that God is present. It means that God is available to, to engage you and that you can, you can talk to him in your spirit and you can talk to him in your mind. You can talk to him in your understanding. And particularly if you have enough of the word of God actually operating in you, then you can maintain a spiritual comprehension of the reality of the ever-present God omnipresent, and the omniscient God, all-knowing, so that you can actually be led in the darkness of solitude and isolation and uh, be able to do like many, many, many of the saints throughout church history have been able to do in solitary confinement. John wrote the book of Revelation fundamentally on the island of Patmos in in what would be a quasi-solitary state. It was John Bunyan bless his heart, that was locked in prison for a long time, who received the Pilgrim's Progress and other revelatory insights into the nature and character of the the journey of the believer. And so he did not collapse into a kind of narcissistic gnashing of teeth and, and wanted to take his life because he didn't have communion with God. He did have communion with God. And I I think that our topic is extremely relevant, don't you? Because on the spectrum of Uh, freedom to commune with people and isolation from communion with people on that spectrum, freedom to privilege, right, opportunity, and then uh, all privileges, rights, opportunities taken away. On that spectrum, you and I can really assess whether or not we value what God has given us in terms of the inheritance of being alive, healthy, and engaged with people. I happen to just be exceedingly blessed with hundreds, even thousands of people for whom I get to engage them, like I'm doing now every Monday for two hours and then every day. But just in life in general, I, I and my job as a pastor and a counselor uh, makes it that I, you know, I have to really labor for time with God alone because 
much of my job is dealing with people. Much of my job is dealing with people. And so it becomes a tension. I get it. I know you. I know you understand what I'm saying, that there's a tension that says I need time with God. But I'm thankful for the time with people because the time with people is really, in a lot of ways, time with God as well. That's exactly right. It was God who said to Adam, it is not good that the man be alone. And so there was a need for him to have another partner along with God. Not that God wasn't sufficient. It was just that God was not efficient relative to Adam's objective, Adam's calling, Adam's purpose, Adam's goal. Adam had to have a proliferation of seed in order to uh, to replenish the earth and subdue it. And if that was going to happen, God would have to bring someone like him opposite to him that would complement him called the woman. That's what God meant. And so family is critically important. Relationship is critically important. But here's the question that we want to work through now as we get ready to go to the phone lines. Do you, do you understand the concept of perfect love, mature love, developing love, increasing love, a love, a love that terminates in expression? Do you understand that as a means of overcoming those little foxes that can take on the name fear? that can paralyze your faith, that can hinder your walk with God, hinder your expression of love uh, for God to others? Can you, can you see that? Two lines open, one 888 Let me go to line number one and talk with Ellen and San Mateo. Ellen, are you there? Yes, I am. Um, it's, it's really amazing that, that you're bringing up fear, because that's, that's kind of what I want to talk to you about. I think we all have, well, I shouldn't speak for anybody else but myself. In the back of my mind, I always think, the worst thing in the world is if Jesus ever said to me, I, I, you know, I don't know you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so being separated from God is my biggest fear. That's the fear that, that haunts me. The thought is unbearable to me. I could put me on an island, put me in solitary, but do not separate me from God. But the, 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 the kind of twist on it, you may not want to go there, but last week I have been in such a state of fear about something new that I've never had. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I, I have questions because I'm not. I, I, God's still working on me, so there's right. always that thought: Am I good enough? Am I, you know, whatever? I mean, I, I you know, I, valid I don't, question, valid question for all of us. And so that's that's there. But Pastor Jesse, I've had a new wrinkle in it, which is really freaking me out since last week's conversation. Now we're not going to go over that again. However, when I brought up the, the uh, idea of, of different people having different uh, interpretations of the word, it is so scary to me. You know, I told you last week about I went to my Jewish friends and they played sure. John Hagee. Okay. And I, I realized after the fact that they weren't, it wasn't so much that they were trying to make me feel at home, but to tell me, hey, we don't need Jesus because we're Jewish. Okay, exactly. we went over that. So, but, but what really started to scare me is, you know, we all want to think that in the day of the Antichrist, well, I wouldn't be snookered by that guy. Right. And yet, there I'm listening to it, and I can't always be as discerning as I would hope to be. And if there are different interpretations, I have to, the Word of God is everything to me. That's, mm-hmm. that's uh, all Christians. It should be. And if I have to wonder, maybe I misunderstood you, you said it's it, it a heavy issue that needs a debate. So are you saying that, that it's possible that there are two sides. I have to to be assured that I that, that there is a definitive word of God, and it scares me to death when I think that there may be good quote godly <laughs> men interpreting it in a different way, 
and and maybe an incorrect way. I mean, I I was sort of in the camp you were saying, and I was wondering if it, in a so-called debate of great minds, um, would there be a scriptural backing for John Hagee's camp? If you, I'm using him because I don't know, didn't know the other names. Right. More, uh, right. Uh, would there be a scriptural? Because that to me is really terrifying. I don't want any. I, I want to be able to pick up the Word of God and know what I'm reading and and understand it, that this is what, what God is speaking to me. This is what he's saying, and I need that. And the idea that maybe other people are kind of just sort of weaving in and out with different interpretations and getting it wrong, and, and it seems that the, Hagee's argument is sort of more secular, emotional, political. You know, it's not... But my fear is, is it scriptural? Could, could in that, that debate that you spoke about, could someone actually have a really good argument based on scripture? Well, yeah, um, yeah, but, you know, there's a lot of holes in what you're saying. So I'm going to back up and help, help you with three or four category distinctions that need to be understood first and foremost for the answer to even um, make sense for you. Because you said a lot just now. You do know that. And a lot of people heard you and a lot of people understand and sympathize with the fundamental and main question and burden that you have. The fundamental and main question and burden that you have, uh, Ellen, is whether or not it is the Christian's uh, right and privilege to just go to the Bible, read it anywhere from Genesis to Revelation and understand it verbatim. Uh, without equivocation? And the answer is no. It's just not. God didn't make his word in such a way that there would not be the need to follow certain mechanisms to make sure you understood the aim and objective of of revelation. That When we say revelation, in in the proper sense, we're talking about God's revealed will given to us in inspiration called Scripture. So uh, we are privileged, first of all, to have the scriptures. I can go on a long and lengthy aside as I, we've had a wonderful weekend at Grace with our missionary, Lance Heller, from Papua New Guinea and all of the different dialects in the different villages that are uh, incompatible with each other. They don't overlap in any way whatsoever. And so translation of the scripture into their language is a phenomenally difficult task if they're not speaking what is called the common national language, uh, which all nations have a common national language like we do in America. So the Bible has to be translated in the common national language of Papua New Guinea, but that doesn't help people who live out in the bush country whose language is so uniquely different than the semantical structure of uh, what we would call Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and then the languages, the cognate languages that would be easiest, easiest translated from Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and only a little bit of Aramaic, but uh, the language of Latin, that is uh, Greek, has um, a history, a, a branch into the Latin language, Espanol. The Latin language and the Greek language has... It uh, has a, a branch into the French language and the German language and the American language as well. Uh, those of us who are American-speaking citizens, English-speaking citizens, are extremely blessed that the tree of language running back to Phoenician Hebrew and running back to Koine and classical Greek 
um, it's only three or four languages away from their phonetical roots, meaning anybody that knows the Greek understands Aleph, Be- I'm sorry, I'm getting ready to go into the Hebrew, uh, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, Zeta, Eta, Theoda, uh, Iota, Kappa, Lambda, Mu, C, Omicron, P, Rho, Sigma, Tau, Upsilon, Phi, Keep, C, Omega. These are the Greek alphabets. And then the same thing would be for the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Delap, etc. They are very close in phonetic structure. So that translating the Hebrew and translating the Greek, although the technical skills that are needed to deal with those languages have to be on somewhat of a scholarly level, they're not hard to translate into English. Here's what this means. And I tell the saints at Grace this all the time, Helen. I, we've got five, six, seven hundred people coming to Grace and they're all multi-ethnic. We've got color spectrums all over the place. I tell them, I said, you guys speaking English are highly favored by God because your English allows you to understand Greek and understand Hebrew translations of the scripture much easier than some of our other nations of the world, ethnoses of the world, like I'm stating Papua New Guinea, who when you hear their dialect, you can't even begin to understand any kind of syntactical correlation, uh, phonetical correlation between what they are saying and what the original scriptures say. So the work is massive in terms of translation. All that to say this. God told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Do you know what that means, Ellen? It means that God had to gift the church with the ability to do language translation at a level that secured that the people who were hearing the word of God in their own languages, this is Acts 2, would indeed be hearing God's word albeit with the efforts and labors and the nuances that go into translating a host language into an original language into a host language, which has has difficulties, but they're not so difficult that we can't ultimately arrive at the true word of God. So you have a Bible with 66 books and thousands of sentences in it, hundreds of thousands, rather, and and thousands of chapters. And that Bible is so perspicuously clear in the main theological things when we properly exegete Scripture, properly expound it, that you can be sure that you know God. But that's not going to be true, Ellen, and all of you that are listening, the moment you open up and you start reading. What God said to all of us is that, how can I understand, this is Acts chapter 8, our missionary was preaching from the Ethiopian eunuch who humbly admitted when Philip was given assignment to come to him to help him. Philip says, do you understand what you read? And that Ethiopian, who was a brilliant man in his own right coming from Ethiopia, said, how can I understand except someone guide me through this scripture? He understood that he needed an interpreter. He needed a teacher. He needed someone that knew God's word and accurately communicated it in order for him to understand. That's the case for you and I, too. So here is where you and I are, have been and will be, because he gave some gifts unto the church. This is Christ, pastors and prophets and teachers and pastors and evangelists. 
I mean, apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists for the edifying of the body, for the building up of the saints until we all come into the unity of the faith of the son of the living God. Until we come into the fullness of that for which Christ has redeemed us, we're going to always need good teachers to help us understand essential doctrine and then doctrine that becomes a little bit uh, challenging, such as eschatology. And I've been saying this for years. I've been saying this for years and I'll say it now. My observation of eschatology relative to all of the forefathers from the days of the apostles, the patristic fathers, the Greek Orthodox fathers, the uh, Western fathers, the Roman Catholic Church, the reformers, the Puritans, certainly evangelical preachers up to today, uh, in my experience listening to them, there, there hasn't been given by the Holy Spirit the essential clarity needed for the body of Christ to have a clear understanding, a consonant understanding, a coherent understanding of what the Bible really teaches on eschatology. And all that means is that there are things that God allows us to be somewhat vague about and unclear because it's not time for us to have that clarity since eschatology is something that the early church been struggling with since the days of the apostles. They were in the early church. They were really thinking Jesus was coming back in a few years. And, and after the first century, they were really miffed that he didn't come 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 back. And the church started sliding into apostasy. That's why you got the rev- a letter to the revelation or the letter of the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John to the churches. Because after the first century, the churches started getting into trouble, having to wait on Jesus. And yet Jesus said that he would be like a a man gone on a long journey and that we are to be faithful and to to occupy till he comes, no matter how long it would be. And now it's been almost 2000 years, some 15 years, less than 2000 years. And every generation says he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And you're right to say he's coming, but he didn't come. And it's been 2000 years. And whose fault is that? That's not Christ's fault. That's the church's fault for not being prepared and ready to understand the long journey and therefore making assumptions about what Scripture says about the millennium, what Scripture says about the end time, what Scripture says about the tribulation, what Scripture says about the Antichrist, what Scripture says about national Israel and the church and all that. The privilege I have, having started my journey in Christ around eschatology, Ellen, is that I was thrown into the phrase at 18, 19 years old, as I have stated before, with J. Vernon McGee and some of the other uh, prominent Baptist, Southern Baptist pastors around premillennial dispensational theology. And they were doing then what they're doing now, preaching premillennial dispensational theology as as though that were the only system around. And then when I began to dig and study and began to realize that premillennial dispensational theology just came into existence over the last hundred years and that on a questionable premise, but that the idea of eschatology or end time was never, never, ever had the view that it is hearing here in the West in America, going back to the early church fathers, Tertullian and Irenaeus and Augustine and Jerome and many of them. They had a simpler view of Christ's return that did not have all of the complexity that you hear, certainly of John Hagee, which, in my opinion, is a is a rank heretic on so many different levels. But when he pushes into this notion of the Jews are chosen and the Gentiles are saved, he is utterly 
utterly heretical at the foundation of the gospel. And, and unfortunately, the framework of premillennial dispensationalism creates this spiritual apartheid that does that. And, and that's why I said last week, and I got to let you go, I'm way overdue. I'm looking forward to the day when the church is humble enough to acknowledge that the views that are prevalent today, the premillennial view, whether it's post, mid, or, or pre-trib, the amillennial view, the postmillennial view, and the partial preterite view, which is uh, another view that I think is a valid consideration, when they are given legitimate airing in the context of debate, where people are reasonable, civil, deeply knowledgeable about church history, deeply knowledgeable about doctrine, deeply knowledgeable about exegesis and, and grammar and things like that, to be able to actually do a presentation where you can set forth your argument for pro uh, premillennial dispensational theology. And then here comes a very learned scholar who knows your system as well as you know his, and he can deconstruct your argument and show where your argument has major weaknesses and major potholes and inconsistencies, uh, uh, contradictions that can't be resolved, because that can be done with the premillennial dispensational position if the opportunity were, were given. But you don't ever hear it. It's not taking place today. And maybe because it's not time, but I got a feeling it's going to be time uh, somewhat here in, in the near future as the world continues to fall apart and things get more difficult. One last thing, and then my, my board operator is going to have to clean up my, my, my long speech, but it's important for you to get this. Don't you worry about comprehending the right view on eschatology, that is the return of Christ. As much as you make sure, Ellen, and everyone listening, that you've got the right gospel, because it's the right gospel that secures you for salvation. We know this because Jesus ain't came yet, and God's been saving people since the days of Christ, using people since the days of Christ, and people have died and gone to heaven to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. If we get the gospel right, we're good. We're good, and that's what you and I want. We want to make sure that we are under faithful teaching that keeps us smack dab in the middle of someone who teaches us, who believes the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, and that Jesus is the subject of Scripture, and that they will only say what they know and not more than what they know. And if they were to intimate that they see something, they would let that be uh, clearly known to you who are sheep out there. This is my opinion. I don't have a, a, a hard dogmatic position on it, but I think that this is the way that it looks like, but I could be wrong. That is very helpful in the peripheral doctrinal issues. When it comes to core issues that have uh, been established by the church now for some 1800 uh, uh, and uh, 1985 years, we cannot, we cannot forego them. And we don't have to because the Holy Ghost, which is the ultimate teacher, has given us clarity on those things. So what you want to do is make sure that you are praying to God to give you the humility to walk in the spirit and then that the spirit of God will lead you to qualified teachers that will keep you biblically based, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, gospel-centered, and everything on the periphery will take care of itself. Thanks for the call. Got to take a break. Way overdue. I'll be right back. Three lines open. one 367 1-888-367-5329. If you're in Christ, you have nothing to fear. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.